But we, some of the verses that we're looking at today, we started looking at last week, and we want to kind of step back and revisit them because some of them were a little bit more challenging. And so I'm going to read the, I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to go through this. He says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he has called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll pause there. The whole section of scripture that we're looking at here is really describing two ways. And these two ways are described throughout the Bible. Paul describes it um, set differently in Romans than he does here. But the idea is that there is a way of deception and that there's a way of truth. And Paul is going to talk about the way of truth and the path of deception here and how that um, engages with itself. And so we, last week we looked, at, we looked at the lawless one. We talked about that. We talked about what we think we can know with confidence about the man of lawlessness. And so I hope you can go back and listen to that if you weren't here last week and kind of start wrapping your brain around it. But this, well, the reason I want to slide down here is because it says that people will be deceived, specifically those who are perishing will be deceived, because they refuse to love the truth. And then it says, therefore, God sends them a delusion. So they believe what is false. And if we're honest with ourselves, that sounds really weird, right? That God sends a delusion to delude people so they don't believe in the truth. And so I wanted to give that some time to explain. And then we're going to show how this is in contrast to uh, the next group of people described in the following verses. Okay? So let's get some basics up front. And as with the other sermons, because of the type of content, I'm kind of asking questions and answering those questions. So the first question that I think comes up a lot um, is this. Will there be a great revival in the end? Uh, you hear Christians all the time talking about praying for revival in the United States. Are we going to see a massive revival in the end before Jesus comes back, before the day of the Lord? And this is what I'll say. Biblically, we can guarantee there are going to be two core things that I think everybody would agree with. There's going to be a remnant from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That's Revelation 7. And two, there's going to be mass revival among the Jews. We see that in Romans 11. We see there's going to be a, a remnant from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And we see there's going to be a lot of Jews getting saved at the end. Okay? Um, is there going to be a mass revival everywhere else? We don't know. We don't know. The biblical picture actually is often that there is a remnant of people who are saved and not a mass revival. Now, does this mean that people will be getting saved all the way up until the end? Yes, I believe people will be getting saved all the way up until the end. But personally, and call me the pessimist, I don't think we should be shocked that the great apostasy and great deception is far greater than the great revival, okay? And so this is what we see in Matthew 7. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, 
and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Okay? That's the words of Christ. And so then the, the question from this passage and what follows is, well, who will be deceived? If there's going to be a mass deception, who will be deceived? And this is one of those passages where all of the answers lie in the syntax and grammar. If you slow down and you go slow enough to kind of read it, you realize that Paul does what he so often does, which is in his clauses where you see commas, he kind of will hide unasked questions. You know what I mean? And we do that in English all the time. We'll say, you know, Bill, my dad, right? And we just, we, we implied in the comma, well, who is Bill? Bill, who is Bill? Oh, he's my dad. Bill, my dad said those sorts of things. Paul's doing much, and the translators have done a great job. And so who, who will be deceived? Well, Paul's very clear. He says they will be deceived who are perishing. Those who are perishing are the ones will be deceived. And so basically perishing, this term perishing refers specifically to eternal destruction. So Paul is talking about hell and he's saying those who are already on the path of destruction, those who have already been deceived by the deceiver will continue in their deception and they will see an increased magnitude of deception in their own lives. Those who are perishing, those who are not eternally living, but those who are eternally dying, they will be deceived. Now, the transverse uh, of that is that those who are living will not be deceived. And so those who are of the true faith will not be deceived. They cannot be deceived, okay? So then the next question is this. He says, the wicked will be deceived. Those who are perishing will be deceived. So then the question is, why are they perishing? And this is what Paul says. Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So there's a couple of things here that we need to notice. Why are they perishing? They refuse to love the truth. The reason they're perishing, the reason they're not going to be with Jesus, the reason they will not be written in the Lamb's book of life is because they refused to love the truth. Love is an important word. They don't refuse to know the truth. They refuse to love the truth, okay? In the, in the Torah, when, when Moses is writing, the, he's penning this, these threats of blessings and cursing from God, the big sin that he prophesies they're going to be guilty of is that they took no delight in obeying the Lord their God. This is the opposite of that, all right? That loving the truth is different from knowing the truth. So because they refuse to love the truth, they cannot be saved. And because they cannot be saved, they are perishing. And because they are perishing, they will be among those whose deception increases. So Paul, although it's, I'm not saying it's easy to swallow, right? But Paul is very clear grammatically in what he's explaining. They refuse to love the truth, Okay, therefore they cannot be saved. Because they're not saved, they are perishing. Because they are perishing, they will be deceived. 
And so there's an important question then that we ask as we start tracking out this logic. And the question is this, well, what's the truth? What's the truth that I need to love? What's the truth that I need to not reject so that I am saved, so that I don't perish, and so on, that I'm not deceived? And Paul just uses that word truth. And so we have to look elsewhere in the context of this passage, as well as in the New Testament, to think, well, what does Paul mean by truth? Well, the truth is this. What is the truth that saves It's the gospel. The truth that saves is the gospel. That's always what the word truth refers to, or I should say the vast majority of the time, the word truth in the New Testament specifically refers to the gospel. And if you don't know what the gospel is, the plan of salvation, you could put it as very basic. It's much bigger than that. But that Jesus died for our sins so we could be forgiven that he was raised from the dead so we could live forever, that he sent his Holy Spirit so we could follow him as king, and that he's coming again to judge the quick and the dead. I mean, that is the gospel in its very abbreviated fullness. Now, Paul uses this word truth three times in these verses. He says they refused to love the truth and so be saved. They did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And then in verse 13, that through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth, that's how the gospel is applied to us. And so I think we can say with confidence, even just from 2 Thessalonians, that the truth is the gospel. But if we need more convincing, this is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. 1 Timothy 2, 4, um, God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That Christ says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. This is how the word truth, you can look it up at concordance, which is like a search engine for your Bible, okay? You can look it up in a concordance in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, in 1st and 2nd Peter, in James, in Hebrews, in every one of Paul's epistles and the gospels, truth refers to the truth of Jesus, which is the gospel in its simplest sense, but obviously is larger as well. Colossians 1.5 probably summarizes it the clearest when it says this, because there is hope laid up for you in heaven, and of this you have heard before in the word of truth, comma, the gospel. In other words, you have heard of this before in the word of truth, comma, which is the gospel, okay? And so the point is this, Because they won't believe in the truth of the gospel, they cannot be saved. And because they are not being saved, they are perishing. And because they are perishing, they will be deceived. But who deceives them? Next question. God makes it really clear. Paul makes it really clear. God does. God sends a strong delusion so that their deception continues. And if you're if you're, if you're paying half attention, there's a party that goes, huh? Right? What do you mean? God sends a delusion. You just read in 1 Timothy that he wants all men to be saved, and now you're saying he sends them a delusion? That doesn't make any sense. So bear with me. In Exodus, we see that God says to Moses, you're going to go and talk with Pharaoh, but I'm going to harden his heart. And so God makes a promise to Pharaoh that although he's going to say, let my people go, God's going to harden his heart. What we see then in Exodus is a pattern here where 
Pharaoh hardens his heart, Pharaoh hardens his heart, Pharaoh hardens his heart, and then God prophetically had said before and then carries out in fulfillment, it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. See, the hardening of, the, of Pharaoh's heart was interwoven both in sovereign providence as well as in personal choice. I want you to realize two things. Man will always be deceived unless God intervenes. You need to put that at the forefront of your mind. Man will always be deceived if God does not intervene, okay? We are not spiritually sick. This isn't like the gospel according to the princess bride. We're not mostly dead, okay? We are dead, okay? D-E-D, dead. We're dead, okay? Um, we're not drowning, right? No, we're dead at the bottom, bloated, covered in rocks, right? Crabs gnawing at your feet. We're dead, okay? But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, right? And so you have to realize that man is deceived unless God peels back the veil off his eyes. And so that's number one. And the second thing is this, God will never reject genuine repentance. Why? In large part, because genuine repentance is a gift from God as he unveils our eyes, okay? And so realize that this is the way things work. Just bear with me. I'm going to try to keep explaining it. C.S. Lewis, although I don't agree with everything that he wrote, he's a brilliant guy. He wrote, he put it this way. There are two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, in sense, choose it. And with that, that choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek it will find it, and those who knock, it is opened. Okay? This is the complexity of these things. As Steve often says, we try to unscrew the inscrutable. Okay? So God deceives the deceivers or those who are deceived. So next question is what? Why? Why does God deceive them? Why does God deceive those who are perishing? And this, you have to remember, is the beginning of the end that Paul is talking about. This is the beginning of the end. All right, we don't know when that specific date is. All right, it's not for us to know. It's for us to go and make disciples, like Jesus says in Acts chapter 1. But this, it's important to know that this is the beginning of the end for this reason. This act of giving people over to the deception that they have chosen is a part of God's judgment. We talked about this last week. This is passive wrath. In other words, God giving us what we both deserve and what we desire, even if it is to our detriment. I gave you the illustration last week that this is like a rowboat that is tied up on a wild river, and God essentially says, all right, and snips the rope. If you want it, you got it. There it goes. In the beginning of the end, as God begins pouring out his judgment on the world, realize that God giving people over to the deception that they have loved instead of loving the truth is an act of God beginning to judge the world. That God, God gives unbelievers over to their own folly, and because of that, they embrace the Antichrist. They believe what is false. 
which perpetuates their own rebellion and their own deception, and they go from bad to worse. The wickedness of casting off God expands. And we see this in the book of Romans, as Paul describes it in chapter 1, where God gave them up, God gave them over, God gave them over to a depraved body, depraved mind. And how ultimately it says that not only do, does man do evil and invent new ways of evil, but every around, everyone around him looks at him and applauds his efforts at creating new evil. Look. If we're, not, if we're not near the end, we're really near the near. Because I don't know how many times over the last year I've said, is everyone delusional? That the stuff we're believing? There's a sense in which I think the deception is starting. And it's not pockets of deception. The deception is beginning. Look, I'm not saying that we're in the Great Tribulation. I'm saying I think the deception is starting. Or people just be crazy, okay? <laughs> but not everyone will be condemned. And don't focus so much on that that you forget that there is a beautiful other side to this same coin. Now, this side is beautiful in its own way, in a way I don't know if we fully comprehend until we're in glory with Jesus and we understand the gravity of his holiness Right? Then I think we'll understand that there's actually glory and wrath. I know that's hard to comprehend, but one day I believe fully we will comprehend it. Okay? But there's another side to this coin. It says, but, in other words, um, but you brothers who I'm writing this to, but we give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. What a difference and a change in language because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord <coughs> Jesus Christ. <coughs> okay. Who won't be deceived? That's the next question. Well, on the contrary, there are people who won't be deceived. Specifically, Paul says they are the people of God, the beloved brothers, all right? The family of God. God is building a family. That's what this is. Jesus says you must be born again. You're being born again into a new family, not by the will of a father or the will of man, but by the will of God, the will of God, meaning it's God's desire and God's choice. And so God, it, Paul thanks God for them because he says, I know this group of deceived people is not you. You, on the contrary, are the first fruits of salvation. In other words, this is that first generation of people who are getting saved following the resurrection. Not only that, but you're being sanctified by the Spirit. You believe in the truth. You won't be deceived. You can't be deceived. That's what Jesus said, by the way. Believers cannot be deceived. He says in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs, in other words, false messiahs, and false prophets will arise, and they'll perform great signs and wonders so as to, or in other words, in order to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So there's a couple things we know from that. One, Paul is 
essentially exegetically teaching on Jesus from Matthew 24, right, through the oral tradition of the Gospel of Matthew, but realize that essentially what Paul is saying is that false Christs and prophets will arise. They will lead people astray, but they won't lead the elect astray because it's not possible. Well, why won't they be deceived? Because God chose them to be saved rather than to be deceived. Or I should say, God chose them to be saved rather than to remain deceived. What do I mean that God chose them? So glad you asked. Okay. I don't know why I chose Second Thessalonians. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, why did, what do I mean by that God chose them? This is what I mean. I'm not saying that God brings people kicking and screaming into the kingdom. Nor has he ever excluded someone who wanted to be there. I am saying, again, that man is spiritually dead, not sick, dead. And in his natural state, man does not desire Christ. And he does not desire truth. He loves unrighteousness in his natural state. You know this because you are acquainted with Jesus and you still love sin, okay? We get this. Man will only desire Christ. Man will only crave truth over deception if God plants a desire for Christ for truth in his heart. Once that imperishable seed is planted within our body of death, this is what Peter says in 1 Peter, the desires of man change, and the desires of man are altered, and no longer do we kick and scream against Jesus, but instead we, he pursues us and woos us, like we sang. We are drawn to him. Jesus said, no one comes to me, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Not I might if he comes. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him, and I will, draw, I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets that, know that they will be taught by God, and anyone who has come and heard from the Father learns comes to me. The idea is that the Father draws you, God teaches you, you learn because he's a good teacher, and then Jesus raises you up. That this, this seed, this imperishable seed, is an unstoppable freight train that God plants in your heart and it ultimately culminates with your complete restoration and glory. Now, we come because we want to come. We desire Jesus because God gave us a desire for him. Now, he pursues us and woos us and we hear his call. And our spiritual rebirth quickens us to life in such a way that Jesus becomes irresistible to those who have been made alive. Fancy pants, we call this the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. The point is that God is at work in you far before you even realize it. <laughs> That's the point. God is at work in you. Any spiritual interest in Christ is a gift from God. It's not because you're awesome. It's because he's awesome. It's a gift. Cherish it. 
So that's why they won't be that's why they won't be deceived because God has chosen them to give them truth. And so how is this salvation, how is this truth giving then made effective to our benefit? Well, Paul says clearly here, he says, we are saved by belief in the truth, that is the gospel. The point is that you're not saved by works so that no man can boast. That it doesn't how much good stuff you've done or how much bad stuff you've done. What matters is that you believe in the truth and the truth transforms you over time. And from that, because from that place of belief, the work of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is in sanctification. And sanctification has two kind of ter or two uses that we that we use it for. Two uses. Okay. It, it means two things. <laughs> sanctification is the the idea of setting something aside to making it holy. And we also use the word sanctification as you becoming more like Christ over time. In other words, it's the process of your salvation. Okay, And so you believe in the truth and the Holy Spirit sanctifies you, making you holier so you're a fitting vessel and makes you more like Jesus over time as the gospel works out in your life. This is sanctification. This is the process of redemption which culminates in restoration. It's already, not yet. It's happening. It happened. It will happen. It's all of the above. There's a process to it, okay? Justification, sanctification, glorification, ultimately all under the umbrella of restoration. The point is this. This is God's work so that no man can boast, so that when we're in glory, there'll be one person on stage. Nobody will be talking about Pastor Bill and how we eat. No, they're going to talk about Jesus, and no one's going to talk about you. They're going to talk about Jesus because it's all been a work of Christ. And you say, well, but why would God do that? Why would God pull someone out of the gutter? Why would he pull them out of the muck and the mire? Why would God save a worm like me and like you? And this is what he says. Again, this is all grammar. To this he called you through our gospel, comma, so that. This is the purpose clause. So that, if you have your Bible, read it with me. So that you may obtain the glory of Jesus. Let that sink in for a second. How glorious is Jesus? How glorious do you think Jesus is? Use your spiritual imagination. In other words, how awe-inspiring, how beautiful how joy-filled, how magnetic. He wants you, he called you, so you would obtain Jesus' glory. Jesus' glory, where Jesus is called the radiance of the glory of God. Like if God the Father is the Son, Jesus is the sun rays, that kind of idea. He wants you to obtain the glory of Christ. That's amazing. It's amazing. I'm going to go quickly here. That's why God does it. Not because you're great. Not because heaven just didn't feel right without you. You know, not because, you know, God was lonely. No, 
God is a God who buys a mansion on the seashore and then he invites you in as a benefactor of his mortgage that he's paying. It's so you could obtain the glory of Christ. This is, the son of man came not to be served. He came to serve. And so we need to get over ourselves when we think about how we're just such great servants for Jesus. You don't serve Jesus, he serves you. And when you do serve him, you're just serving him with the stuff you gave him. Like I've said a hundred times before, it's like your dad giving you $20 to buy him some crappy Christmas gift as a kid, okay? That's it. Jesus is the one doing the work. And he'll wear that dad hat proudly while he mows the lawn, okay? <laughs> Even though it's stamped crooked. So then brothers, this is his conclusion. Look for the, look for the imperatives, okay? Imperatives are the commands. Look for the commands, Circle them in your Bible. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word, spoken word or by letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts, because they're being persecuted, and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men, because not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things we command, as outlined in this letter. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Do you know what you need if you're going to stand firm, if you're going to hold fast, if you're going to trust the triune God, if you're going to pray for the gospel to go forward? Do you know what you need? You need to direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. I got a news break for you. You're not steadfast, but he is. And he will remain faithful to the end. Direct your hearts to his love. Remember the gospel. Remember the good work that he has done. Remember his faithfulness the faithfulness of Christ and what Christ did on the cross in obedience to the Father in all of the ways that your obedience falters and fails. And in light of these realities, you do three basic things. Stand firm, hold fast. It's parallels. Stand firm. To what? The oral tradition of the apostles and of the teachings of Jesus. He doesn't mean you better make sure you sing Amazing Grace. That's not what he means. So Amazing Grace is a great hymn. When he says tradition, he's not saying the pharisaical traditions. He's not talking about church tradition in kind of the dirty word way that we might hear it used in our culture. He's talking about the oral tradition of the teachings of the apostles and Jesus and the growth and development and maturity of the early church that we would learn from them, we would walk in Paul's ways. He says it elsewhere like this, follow me as I follow Christ. That's basically what Paul is saying. And he's saying, cling to the truth. Cling to the truth of the gospel. Don't be deceived. Don't be tripped up by false prophets. Don't be derailed. Don't believe fork-tongued preachers. You cling to truth. You stand firm in it. You hold fast into it. You remember the gospel. And you hold on to it like a sure and steady anchor for your soul, which is what it is. That's one. Two, trust the triune God. Trust the triune God. Here, Paul, very similarly, in the book of Acts, 
when he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, he basically, I'm paraphrasing, um, I can't read it with my eyes closed. He says, paraphrasing, look, I trust you to the word and the spirit. He's going to take care of you, but I got to go. And that's basically what Paul does. Same thing here. He trusts them to the triune God. Paul doesn't micromanage their salvation. He trusts that he who began a good work in you will bring it about to the day of completion. What has God done? He loved us. He gave us eternal comfort. He gave us a good hope through grace, and he called us to it. And what will he do? He will continue to comfort us by his spirit, and he will establish us in perseverance in both word and work as we follow the sanctification outworking of Christ in our lives. And the third thing is this. We pray for progress despite opposition. Paul says, pray that the gospel of truth would pierce through the darkness like an arrow because it deserves to be heard and it deserves to be received, but the night is evil and there are many adversaries and many who do not love the truth. They love deception. So pray for us too, but trust him through it. So stand firm, trust God, and pray. That's your spiritual weapon in this war. Let us use it. Let me pray for us, and then you can, we're going to dismiss the kids. So parents, you can kind of go up and get your kids lined up up there. If you want to talk for your table, talk at your table, you feel free. Father God, um, I pray that you would have taken something from today and lodged it in someone's brain for your glory, for their encouragement, Lord, that we might become more like you, that we might be found um, with you, God, in your resurrection, and God, that we would grow in, in love, that we would grow in trust and faith. Father, we thank you that you have done such an amazing work. Truly, we have a great deal over which we can rejoice. In your name, amen.